Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory on this beautiful night in Tucson, Arizona. And we also welcome those of you watching this podcast on the World Wide Web via iTunes U and streaming on the Stewart Observatory website. This is our fourth lecture of the semester, Stewart Observatory, the 87th year that we are providing uh, public lectures and stargazing to the Tucson community. Before I introduce tonight's speaker, I have a couple of announcements. One, first of all, notice anything? The clock works. It's a new clock. I actually had to call up the head of facilities management and raise holy hell. It's been a year. It's been a year since we've had accurate time in this room, and it's an embarrassment. So now we have accurate time. Yeah, that, that's worth enough for me. It's like, wow. Second of all, it is a gorgeous night. That means the Raymond E. White Jr. Telescope is open for public viewing at the conclusion of tonight's lecture from 8.30 until 10 o'clock. Feel free when the talk is over to the white building that's got the big white dome on the top. Go uh, through the door and up two flights of stairs and you will find Sean and Lauren who are two of our undergraduate astronomy majors. They will operate the telescope and I think Neptune is up and Uranus is up. We may not, it may, it may be a while before Jupiter uh, clears the building on the east, but there are plenty of things that they can show you. If you've never looked through a big telescope before, I suggest you take the opportunity to do it. Also, there are students here for assignments. If you are in Dr. Holberg's class, there's Melissa, your TA. At the conclusion of question and answer, she will take your information to prove that you were here. The rest of you, I will validate your assignments down at this table. I'll have a little stamp and I'll stamp your notes or whatever. Some of you actually have little forms. I know the students from Pima College bring these forms, so I will do that. So, uh, we only have two more lectures left after this, plus the Mark Aronson lecture coming up on the 16th of November. And I'll tell you a bit about that at the conclusion of tonight's talk. But without further ado, I'd like to introduce Carl Hergenrother from our friends across the street at the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory. That's what the Brits say. We call it the Looney Lab. And uh, yes, I tell people all over the world that while most universities don't even have an astronomy department, astronomy is done in the physics department, this is like the only university in the world that has two astronomy departments. The people that study the stars and galaxies are here at Stewart, and the people who study the solar system are across the street. And the Flandros, please, there are plenty of empty seats right down here. <laughs> right down here. I have two rows reserved. Yes, please. Um, and uh, we have Flandros Science Center in between us. Um, you may have heard in the news recently that the University of Arizona nabbed, earned, I would say, $600 million grant. It's like the largest grant ever. You know, when Stewart Observatory was founded in 1916, Lavinia Stewart gave $60,000. Now, you have to realize, in 1916, 60000 was a lot. And at that time, that was a record. That was the largest grant the university had ever gotten. Well, the record just went up uh, for the OSIRIS-REx mission, which is what tonight's lecture is about. This is the largest grant given ever to the University of Arizona. Car yes, that's exciting. You know, when the Stewart Observatory grant was announced, the president of the university, Rufus von Kleinschmidt, closed, canceled classes, and they had a bonfire and a pep rally. I don't think our president last year had a pep rally for this, but he should have. Uh, Carl received his bachelor's degree in atmospheric sciences here at the University of Arizona, and he worked uh, with the Catalina Sky Survey, which are our intrepid asteroid hunters up on Mount Lemmon and Mount Bigelow, looking for those asteroids that could potentially hit the Earth. Uh, and then he, he was working with them until he moved to OSIRIS-REx. And so he is here from the OSIRIS-REx mission, that sounds so neat, the mission, to uh, tell us all about OSIRIS-REx. And I think he might have something to say about how you can get involved with the OSIRIS-REx mission as well. So without further ado, Carl Hergenrother. Thank you, Dr. Fleming. And thank you, everyone, for coming listen to the talk. Um, if you have questions at any time, don't be afraid to ask. Don't worry. So what I'll be talking about is the OSIRIS-REx mission, and in particular, why we're going to this one particular asteroid called 1999RQ36, 
how that asteroid was selected, and what do we know about this asteroid? Which is basically the outline of the talk I just gave. As well as at the end, how everyone can be part of it. We've got a whole bunch of educational public outreach programs. So why asteroids? I mean, they're just rocks floating out in space, and we can't get meteorites from them, so we already have samples, you would think. Well, the reason why we go to asteroids is they act like time capsules. You know, the solar system formed four and a half billion years ago. There are no rocks on Earth that are that old. There are really no rocks on the moon that are quite that old, because the moon was formed later. And even though we do get a lot of rocks from asteroids, they're called meteorites, a lot of them have been changed over time. They're not the same state they were when the solar system formed in the early years. So by going to a particular kind of asteroid called the carbonaceous asteroid, we're hoping to pick up samples that are not only close to four and a half billion years old, but have minimally changed over that time period. The big questions that the mission wants to answer by bringing back samples is basically how do asteroids affect our lives? Most of what we're made of, the organics, the carbon in us, the water that's in us, probably came from asteroids. It did, wasn't for, when the Earth was formed, it wasn't already here in place. Sometime afterwards, there's an event that they call the, the Great Early Bombardment, the Cataclysmic Bombardment, where the Earth, basically all the planet, the solar system went haywire. Something went wrong. I shouldn't say went wrong, but something happened. Uh, most likely Jupiter and Saturn moved out a little bit and shook up the entire outer solar system, where all the comets and the primitive asteroids were, and they just bombarded everything. Most of the big craters you see on the moon, especially the Mare, the big ones, came from that time period. So we think that these particular kind of asteroids seeded Earth with the organics and the water that we are now made of. The other question is, how do asteroids affect us now? At some point on Earth, it might not be for a few centuries, we're going to start running out of resources. We're going to have used up all the iron, all the titanium, all the platinum. And a lot of these asteroids are very rich in these very same metals, to the point where if you went to just, you know, a one, two kilometer in diameter asteroid and brought it back, you'd basically have all of the iron, titanium, and platinum that we've ever taken out of the ground. So it wouldn't take many asteroids to really throw, you know, throw into the Earth's economy to get things going. And plus, if we ever do become a true spacefaring race where we actually live out among the planets, you're not going to want to come back to Earth to get your water and your fuel or your building materials. You're going to need to find that out there. And the asteroids are the best place to go because there's so many of them, and they really are almost everywhere in the solar system. And also, do asteroids affect our future? As we all know, the, uh, the dinosaurs were done in by an asteroid. The same thing can happen again, though I am happy to report that we have found almost all of the one kilometer or larger asteroids, though we did find two in the last day or two. But we found at least 93, we found at least 93% of them. We know there's still a few out there. But at least the giant civilization killers, the extinction level events, we found most of them. That doesn't mean the oddball comet can't come in, but that's a much lower probability. So now we're working on the 140 meter or larger objects, the, uh, the ones that would take out a city or a region. And in probably 20, 30 years, we'll have all those too. So it's very possible in most of our lifetimes, the, the near-Earth asteroid impact threat might be gone. But we do have a few objects that we found that are on potential impact courses. Apophis is the one you mostly hear in the news. The object we're going to is also on a potential impact course, and that's something that we're actually going to study. So lately, we've gone to a lot of asteroids. Now, for you know, all of you who have been following the space program from the 60s or 70s, or had fathers who followed the space program in the 60s and 70s, we didn't go to any asteroids and comets. We were going to Venus and Mars and the Moon, and eventually we went out to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. But we really didn't go to our first asteroid until 1991, which was Gaspar, which the Galileo spacecraft on the way to the Jupiter flew by Gaspar, also flew by, by Ida, and actually found a little moon of Ida. Since then, we've had dedicated missions. Uh, NEAR, which was our, the United States dedicated mission to Eros, which is the, one of the largest near-Earth asteroids. The Japanese had a sample return mission to Itakawa, which is a half kilometer across near-Earth asteroid. Um, just recently, our Dawn spacecraft just left Vesta, which is the brightest asteroid in the main belt, but not the biggest. But it is interesting because it does, did look like it had vol volcanism on it. And as you can see, of all the asteroids we visited, there's a huge range in sizes from Vesta, which is 
500 kilometers across to itty-bitty Itakawa, which is there, if you get up close enough, at half a kilometer across. And the object we're going to is Itakawa-sized, just a little bit bigger. But why have we only been going to asteroids since 1991? Let's see if this plays. And the reason is... Hello. We didn't know of many until then. All the asteroids pre... Except for Spacewatch, which was also cross-treated LPL, almost every asteroid discovered up until about 1990 was discovered with photographic film. It didn't go very faint. It took a lot of... You might discover a thousand asteroids in a night, but when you had to manually measure it with a measuring engine, which takes a half hour to two hours apiece, you only measured the interesting ones. So it wasn't until CCD cameras, which is fancy talk for digital cameras that astronomers use, we were able to put those on telescopes, cover a wide field of sky, and let the computer do all the searching for the asteroids on the images. We, were able, we went from 5,000, 10,000 asteroids in 1990 to now half a million. And the near-Earth asteroids, which are the objects that come closest to Earth, and on here they're red, it may be hard to see, but they're the little red guys. We went from just maybe 100, and now we're at about 9,000. So there's a lot more targets. So now every time NASA and most and Europeans and Japanese launch a mission that gets anywhere near an asteroid, take a little diversion, get close to it, take some pictures. And sometimes missions that loop out a few times in the asteroid belt will pass by asteroids every single time. So really, we just have more destinations, which is great. So our mission is OSIRIS-REx. It's led by the University of Arizona. Uh, we started this in 2004. We submitted our first proposal. It was, wasn't accepted. Actually, no one was accepted. Uh, we tried again in 2007. We made the final round, what they call phase A. They picked three missions. We made the finals. Ultimately, we weren't selected. GRAIL, which uh, just finished its mission around the moon, mapping the gravity field of the moon, won that round. And then in 2010, we gave our third try. This was kind of, it has to work this time or else. And again, we made the finals, yay against uh, two other missions, a uh, lunar sample mission that was going to land in one of the ancient basins and bring back uh, mantle material from the moon, and a mission that was actually going to land on Venus, on lava flows, basalt on Venus, and study it for the three hours before it was crushed and melted by the pressure and temperature. Ultimately, we won. Uh, it's a partnership with NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, who do most of our management and are providing one of our instruments. Lockheed Martin's building the spacecraft. And we also have an instrument that is being provided by the Canadian Space Agency, Arizona State University, ASU. Um, students from MIT and Harvard are also providing an instrument, a student-led instrument. In the old days, missions were usually given a name and a number. You know, Mariner 1 through 10, you know, Ranger 1 through 7, Voyager 1 and 2. They don't do that anymore. Now everyone's got to have a cool acronym. <laughs> this was actually thought up in one night by our, at the time, deputy PI and now PI, Dante Loretta, who just came in and said, I have an idea, OSIRIS, at the time we didn't have Rex yet, and here's what it means, and it actually does kind of agree with the mythology. And we're like, great, cool, awesome. I played Dungeons and Dragons, I know about OSIRIS, I read my history. Good choice. But what it really stands for is, first O is origins. What does the asteroid tell us about the beginning of life on Earth and the beginning of the solar system? Most asteroids, when they formed, like planets, you know, you get a bunch of stuff that collects together. If it's big enough, back then in the early solar system, there, was, there's there were a lot of radioactive isotopes. Stuff still exists now, but there must have been a supernova that had exploded not too uh, long before the solar system formed. It may have actually been the impetus that uh, caused the... Uh, dust cloud to collapse to actually create the solar system. And these radioactive isotopes, if there are enough of them in your body, will actually heat up the body to the point that it melts. This is what happened to the Earth, and this is what happened to a lot of the large asteroids, like Vesta, and probably a whole bunch of asteroids that no longer exist because they've been broken up since then. And what happens when you melt the heavy stuff, iron and nickel, goes to the center, forms your core. The light stuff, floats to the surface where you have your crust and your kind of salacious, you know, your silicon rocks. And then you got stuff in between in the middle. 
And then eventually these objects get broken up and cause the asteroids we have now and the meteorites. But the problem with this heating is it kind of disturbs and destroys what was there. If there were organics, they get cooked. If there was water, it gets driven off. So you lose this really important uh, information. But there are objects that farmed far enough out that even though they have some metals in them, they didn't have enough metals to have enough radioactive isotopes to heat up enough where they would actually differentiate. And it's what we call undifferentiated asteroids. The biggest one, at least in the main belt, is Ceres, which is the largest asteroid in the main belt. Pluto and the other objects that are Kuiper Belt objects are probably also similar. So you want to go to either one of these objects or a piece off of one of these objects, where hopefully nothing has changed over the four and a half billion years. Now we move down to the second part of OSIRIS-REx, spectral interpretation. We've got hundreds of thousands of meteorites now that we've collected, most of which have been found in Antarctica and actually uh, northwest, Arizona, uh, sorry, northwest Africa and actually in the Arabian Peninsula, where it's easy to find these objects, these meteorites. And we know of half a million asteroids. We know the meteorites come from near-Earth asteroids. We know the near-Earth asteroids come from the main belt. Yet when you look at, when you compare the meteorites to the asteroids, spectrally, which is when you split up their light and you see how red or blue they are and where various features are, they don't look the same. They look close enough, but there's significant differences. And one thing that we're trying to do with this mission is try to figure out why are there differences. We kind of know why. There's this thing called space weathering. You know, if you paint your house, you can paint your car. In 10 years, it doesn't look like that anymore. It's faded. Same thing happens in space. And due to, you know, micrometeoroid bombardments, cosmic rays, solar wind, over time, the, the asteroids will actually change their color. So what we got in the meteorites is when an asteroid hits the atmosphere, the part that's left is probably the part that was in the middle. It's the little 1% of either the strongest material or the material in the middle. So this is fresh stuff. That's what the inside of the asteroid looks like. When we look at that, we're looking at the top few centimeters, which has been baked and blasted with radiation, baked by the sun. It doesn't look quite the same. So by going to an asteroid and bringing back samples, and even a little bit of samples at depth, we can see, okay, if this asteroid that we have, does it match the meteorites that we have in our collection? Resource identification. As I mentioned before, at some point, hopefully soon, we are going to go to asteroids and mine them. That is going to be where the material that we're, that we're going to use for living in space is going to come from. It's probably going to come from asteroids. And so by going to an asteroid and bringing back samples, we'll know how much water is in an asteroid. Because you need water. Water is going to be more expensive than gold when we get to go become a spacefaring race. You need water to live. You need it to drink. And water, you break it into hydrogen and oxygen. That's fuel. So basically, it's your substance and your propulsion. Security is the final S. We know these objects are dangerous. We know they've hit the Earth in the past. We know they're going to hit again. Um, if you go down to the smallest sizes, they hit every second. We just call them little meteors and they're pieces of dust. Even things that are basketball size or maybe even table size hit. There's one that hit just north in the Napa Valley, just north of San Francisco only a few days ago. And they actually found the first meteorite. It hit a woman's house. She heard the thump, didn't think anything of it, read in the newspaper that a, it's probable that a meteorite fell in her town. She went outside, found the rock. They went on the roof, found the crater in the tile. So we do get hit by asteroids all the time. They're just usually pretty small. And if they do happen to end up in your yard, they don't hurt anybody, they just make you rich. But at some point, we're going to get hit again by a big one. So by going to an asteroid and studying it, figuring out, you know, what its internal structure is, how can we move it, and also try to understand the forces that actually move these asteroids around, because they just don't go around the sun based on gravity. There are forces that actually nudge them in different directions. And these forces are, we understand them, but without you know, good knowledge of the asteroid itself, we're not quite sure how it affects, how the asteroid is affected by it. And the last part, Rex, Regolith Explorer. We are going to make a concerted effort to map this entire asteroid down to a few centimeter scale. So we will know every pebble on the surface of this asteroid. That has never been done before. And of course, we're going to bring back oops, samples of the asteroid itself, the actual, hopefully pebbles, dirt, grit. Regulus is a fancy word for dirt. It's planetary dirt. Um, so that's what we call it. So the mission itself, like I said, we started this in 2004. It took three iterations. 
We finally got selected in 2011. It's going to end up as a 14-year mission. Right now, we haven't cut any metal. We're still in the various reviews that we do to make sure that we've designed everything, to make sure that we've taken into account all of the stuff that we need to do, have experts come in, make sure we're, you know, before we do anything, make sure we actually know what's going on. Eventually, around 2014, we'll start cutting metal. They'll start building the spacecraft, building the instruments. In September 2016, we plan on launching. Uh, we don't know what the launch vehicle is right now, but it's probably going to be a Delta IV. What launches most of NASA stuff nowadays. We're going to loop around the sun once, and then in September 2017, we're going to have a close approach with the Earth, which is going to give us a little energy and swing us onto a path that matches the asteroid's orbit. In 2018, we're actually going to get to our asteroid, 1999 RQ-36, and we're going to spend at least a year there um, before we actually start trying to pick up any samples. And then we'll have another year in case things go wrong and we have to be there longer. And then when we leave the asteroid, we head on back. And in 2023, somewhere over the western U.S., we're going to re-enter. We're not sure which direction yet. But we're going to end up landing in Utah. There's a test range there. And it's got a little capsule with parachute. And that's going to be our sample. And then for the next two years, there'll be sample analysis through 2025. This is a model of the spacecraft. We've got Ross there to show you this size. It's got, it's got two solar panels, so it's solar energy. Um, this is actually the, uh, the radio dish for communicating with the Earth, the high-gain antenna. Down here is the sample return capsule. And then we have an arm that comes down and actually picks up the, uh, the sample itself. And I'll go into a little more detail on that and all the other parts of the spacecraft. We have a whole bunch of instruments on here. And I'm not going to walk through them all on this slide. But we do cover everything from visible wavelengths, you know, the, the light you can see with your eyes, all the way out into the into radio. We've got at least three cameras. There's a few more on there, but they're not considered science instruments. But we have three science instrument cameras. One is effectively, you can think of it as a C8. It's not quite the same thing as a C8, you know, the, the typical traditional amateur backyard telescope. But it's pretty close. And that's for seeing the asteroid from a far off distance, as well as when we're up close doing really high resolution imaging of it. We have another camera called uh, MapCam. MapCam is a much smaller instrument, but it's a much wider field, so we can get all of the asteroid in one picture. And that's, we need that in order to figure out its shape and exactly where on the asteroid we're going to go. And then SamCam literally just takes a picture of, as we're dropping down to get a sample, it documents the entire process. So it'll be taking five images a second as we drop down, as we hit the surface, pick up sample, and take off. So it should be pretty spectacular. OLA is a laser altimeter. So basically, it just shoots a laser at the asteroid. The light reflects back. You measure how much time it took, and you know the exact distance. And if you do that over the entire asteroid, you can get a, a shape model of the asteroid down to a few centimeters and know exactly what the shape of the object is, where every little divot is, crater, ridge, boulder, stuff like that. OTES is a thermal mapper, where we'll, get a, we'll be imaging and doing spectroscopy in the thermal infrared similar to what they do on Mars. And what the thermal infrared tells you by looking at uh, differences, whether or not what you're seeing is bedrock, a bare rock surface, or is it just sand? So that's a good way, especially if we're going to drop down and pick up a sample, it would be nice to know whether we're going someplace where there's actually something to pick up. So it would be nice to avoid the bare rock areas. OVIRS is a spectrometer that looks indivisible out to the near infrared. Um, that's where we expect to see most of the signatures of various minerals and organics. And if there's any water ice on the surface, we'll pick it up with this instrument. Radio science really isn't an instrument so much as, as you communicate with the spacecraft from the Earth, you're measuring the time and the velocity of the spacecraft, the time, you know, distance of the spacecraft and the velocity. And just using the spacecraft as a test particle, as it circles the asteroid, you can map out the gravity field. You need that not only to you know, properly understand where your spacecraft's going to go, so you don't accidentally run into the asteroid, but it'll also tell you something about the internal structure. Up until not too long ago, people thought every asteroid was just a big solid rock. But one thing we noticed is that very few of the asteroids rotated very fast. They rotated up to about you know, two hours, and none rotated faster. And the reason for that is because they're not a solid rock. In fact, they've all been shattered over the billions of years, and they're what we call, now call rubble piles. They've been rubbleized. 
So they're little pieces of asteroid that are just being held together by gravity. You spin them up too fast, the pieces start flying off. And you conserve angular momentum by slowing down. And eventually, you get to the point over billions of years where you might spin yourself to nothing. So by understanding internal structure, we'll be able to figure out, is this really a solid piece of rock? Or are there pieces in there? And if so, how big are they? And of course, if you go there, you know, if you have an asteroid that's going to hit the Earth, you know, everyone says, just nuke it. Which should work, except it might not if you're nuking a beanbag and you just push in one side and the, the shock wave doesn't go through to the other side. So it's, it's, a, it's good to understand these things. And REXIS is actually the instrument that students at MIT and Harvard are providing. And it's going to do X-ray spectroscopy of the surface. So it will actually be able to tell us, you know, what percentage of the asteroid is iron, what percentage of it is, you know, copper, silicon, carbon, nitrogen, stuff to that effect. So how do we pick up the samples? It's kind of ingenious because a lot of people, when they were thinking of samples, they think you've got to grapple onto the asteroid and hook onto it. You've got to shovel it out or use a magnet or grinders. Of course, you remember, you're in an environment that has almost effectively no gravity. You're talking one one-thousandth, one-ten-thousandth the gravity of Earth. So if you were sitting on the asteroid and you decided to throw a baseball, not only would the baseball leave the asteroid and never come back, you would fly off and probably leave the asteroid too, just because every action has an opposite reaction. There's just not enough gravity. So what we have, and for those of you who are at least my age or older, remember the old car air filters, you know, the round ones that you just dropped in? That's what this is. We're basically going to drop an old car air filter onto the surface. We have a bunch of liquid nitrogen canisters that will then blow the, regolith into, blow the regolith down into the surface. The regolith will then get caught by the air filter, and then we pogo stick off the asteroid. It's what we call a MUCAV, reverse vacuum. Instead of sucking stuff into the spacecraft, we're blowing it into the spacecraft. And it really does look like an old air filter. So when we get to the asteroid, like I said, we're going to be there for at least a year. And as we first come in, we're going to be approaching it pretty slowly. And hopefully we'll acquire the asteroid a few months out. And as we're going in, we're going to study it with our big telescope and kind of make the same observations we would make from Earth, just to make sure that what we learned from Earth matches what we saw there. Then we'll do a few kind of distant passes. We won't get much closer. Remember, this is a half-kilometer asteroid, so you can get pretty close without things, you know, being, getting in too much trouble. But we're going to make some passes around, you know, 10, 7 kilometers and kind of feel out the gravity field and make our first real reconnaissance of it. And then what we start doing, once we think we've got the gravity field kind of understood, we drop down. And first we'll drop down to about a 1-kilometer orbit. Again, map the entire asteroid and all the different wavelengths and thoroughly understand the gravity field as well. Once we feel safe, we drop down now to a half kilometer orbit. Again, map everything, measure out the gravity field. And then at this point, we'll have picked a few regions that we can land on. And these regions will be selected. Basically, be, there's going to be two criteria. Science interest, you know, if there's organics or water or something interesting, and risk. Obviously, if there's a whole bunch of boulders there, we're not going to try to land because that's not going to end well. So we have to kind of do a trade-off between science and the risk to the mission. And hopefully we'll have at least up to 12 regions, and then we'll start doing reconnaissance passes where we drop down, you know, a couple hundred meters above the surface and really do some high-resolution studying of it. We're going to have a whole series. Tag is what we call the actual touch-and-go, collecting the sample. We're going to do a whole bunch of rehearsals, measuring different aspects of it. Each rehearsal will go a little further down the line. And then eventually we'll do the sample collection, which what we do is we'll come drop down to the asteroid, we'll match its rotation rate at 30 meters, and then just let the gravity pull us down. And we're only dropping about 10 centimeters a second, which is not that fast. We hit the surface immediately on contact, we blow those nitrogen canisters. The whole sample collection probably will last all of a few tenths of a second. And then it's kind of like a pogo stick. It's got a shock absorber on it. It'll keep, the spacecraft will keep dropping for another five seconds, and then, boop, we pogo off. And once we get safely a little bit away from the asteroid, the thrusters kick in, and then we back out to a safe distance of about 20 kilometers and see if we got anything. And if we did, 
we, you know, we, we back off and we take things easy and get ready to go home. If we didn't, we've got enough canisters to try this two more times. So we can do three attempts. And the baseline, I mean, the minimum that we want to get is 60 grams of material. But there, with our tests, we've actually gotten a lot more, a few coffee cups worth of material, which is pretty impressive. And we can't collect rocks up to about two centimeters or even larger. And that's what we want. We want the pebbles, because you can cut them open and see what's inside. And then we head back to Earth, and then eventually we re-enter, and the samples are picked up in Utah. The main spacecraft will still be functioning. It will zip past the Earth. And if it's still in good working order and NASA's willing to fund it, we can go somewhere else. Can't bring back samples from any place else, but we can go to another asteroid, comet, whatever, and study those up close as well. The reason why the mission takes so long, six years, is because even though these asteroids are pretty close to the Earth, that helps you and hurts you. It helps you in that it doesn't take a lot of energy to get there. It hurts you in that, I don't know if anybody watches NASCAR, but you know you're going around in a circle. Well, it might take you 30, 40 laps before, even though the first place guy is going, you know, 10 miles an hour faster than the last place guy, it's going to take you a whole bunch of laps to catch up to him. That's what's going on here. So we're going to an asteroid that only passes close to the Earth every six years. Basically, we catch up to the asteroid every six years. Otherwise, we're kind of just following each other around. And so from launch to when we come back is at minimum six years. And we are launching one year early, so it ends up being a seven-year mission. And that's just the breaks. So how do we go from that, which is all we see from an asteroid from the Earth for the most part, except for maybe the largest asteroids in the main belt where we have a, you know, the big telescopes with adaptive optics that can correct for the seeing, or with Hubble where they can actually see something. I mean, that's our target asteroid right there, 99RQ36. It is a dot. So how do you go from that to this whole world? Well, the first thing you have to do is pick the asteroid, which sounds easy. There's 500,000 asteroids out there, right? Or maybe 600,000 now. They're finding tens of thousands of asteroids every month. So this should be easy. Problem is, most of your asteroids are out beyond Mars. Or even the, and so you're just not going to get there. It's going to cost way too much money. You're going to need way too big of a launch vehicle. And it's going to take too many years. So basically it comes down to cash. It's, that would be a multi, multi-billion dollar mission. And it's just not going to happen. So okay, we're not going to go to the main belt. So let's go to the near-Earth asteroids, the ones that come close to the Earth. You won't need as big of a rocket then. Well, there's over 8,000 of them. I think it's 9,000 now. My slides are a little out of date. Okay, great, 8,000. There's enough. Problem is, they're not all in good orbits to get to. A lot of them, you need a lot of energy to get to. Some of them are inclined with respect to the Earth, so you'd have to use a lot of energy to get up and out of the plane of the solar system. A lot of them are in what we call eccentric orbits. That means their orbits aren't like a circle. They, they're ellipse that stretch out pretty far. So you need a lot of energy to either go very far from the sun or even very close to the sun. And then you got the problem, if you get too close to the sun, now you have thermal issues. Your spacecraft's going to melt. So you need a big thermal shield in front of the spacecraft to protect it from the sun. That's what the messenger uh, craft that Mercury has. If you go too far out, now you start running out of sunlight. So now you have to start thinking radioactive energy sources which is always a major complication, as, or just have super, super big solar panels like Juno has on its way to Jupiter. But again, money. So when you limit yourself to those objects that you can get to in a reasonable amount of time with a currently existing launch vehicle, you can do it in six, seven years, it's not going to cost that, you know, too much money, you end up now with 300 objects. Still sounds good, but... Most of these 300 objects are very small. They're 200 meters or smaller. Reason for that is objects that come very close to the Earth or have orbits similar to the Earth and spend a lot of time in the Earth's neighborhood are easy to discover. So we can see the small ones. The problem with these small guys are one, usually when they're seen, they're only seen for a few days or a few weeks and then they're lost, they're never seen again. I mean, at some point we'll see them again, but it's not gonna be for decades. So their orbits aren't known well enough that you would actually send a spacecraft to them. And two, as you can see here, they rotate really fast. The fastest rotator we have is 26 seconds. How do you land on something that's rotating once every 26 seconds? You, you can't. I mean, it, 
I'm sure if it was unlimited funds, you could, but for the most part, you can't. And also, with something rotating so fast, well, wouldn't it have just thrown off all the regolith, all the dirt? So maybe there's nothing on it. So you got to get rid of all the big guys. So once you do that, you end up with now only 27 objects. So it's starting to get a little dicey here. Well, the problem with the 27 is we may know about them. We've discovered them. We've got good orbits for them. But we haven't studied them all. And some of them don't get bright enough that we can study in the next decade or so to support a mission like OSIRIS-REx. So of the 27, only 11 of them have we studied so we actually know what kind of asteroid they are. Because we don't want to go to just any asteroid. We want to go to these asteroids that have material that hasn't changed from the days of the early solar system. And of those, of those 11 that have been studied, we now have five. So we've gone from 600,000 to five. So how did we end up with the one? 1999 RQ-36. The reason is we know a lot about it. I mean, that is 1999 RQ-36. The craters and the boulders, that's made up. But the actual shape, that's the actual asteroid. When it made a close approach in 1999, when it was discovered, and again in 2005, the uh, Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico, you know, the big dish in the jungle, as well as the dishes in California, Goldstone, which we use for communicating with a lot of our spacecraft, but they can also ping close asteroids and can get seven meter resolution images of the surface. Goldstone can now do three and a half meter resolutions, which they didn't have at this time. So we know this object is pretty close to spherical. Not quite. There's actually kind of a little bit of a ridge along the equator here. And that's kind of interesting because we're seeing a lot of asteroids like that which suggests that at some point in the past, this spun up so rapidly that material started flying off it. So material is actually leaving the poles and slowly drifting down to the equator where it then leaves the surface and maybe it formed a satellite. We don't see any satellites now, but it could, satellite could easily have been formed and lost over time. And also you want some kind of process where things are moving around because, well, if soil's moving, maybe fresh stuff has been uncovered and that would be great to find. So we had a major campaign. I mean, not only was this object well observed before it became the OSIRIS-REx target, but we've had a major campaign using telescopes from all over the world, as well as Earth orbit and halfway across the solar system, almost on the other side of the sun from us with Spitzer, to characterize this object and really learn as much about it as possible. And with the exception of the two near-Earth asteroids that spacecraft have already visited, that's Itokawa that Hayabusa went to, and Eros that Nier went to, we probably know more about this object than any other near-Earth asteroid. So that helps decrease your risk. And the more we learn about this object, the more interesting it is. We couldn't have asked for a better object. This is a schematic of its orbit. You've got the Earth in blue, and 99RQ36 is here in green. It was discovered on September 11th, 1999. And in fact, the name just means discovered in 1999. R means the first half of the month of September. And it starts with A through Z, A1 through Z1, so Q36, and I keep forgetting what that number is, but it's the 2-300th object discovered in the first half of, of September there. Orbit comes extremely close to the Earth, 0 0.003 AU. I mean, that's basically, that's a little further away than the moon comes. So it's got an orbit that comes pretty close to the Earth. And that happens in, the, in late September, which is why we're launching in late September and returning in late September. It just happens to be where the orbit crosses the Earth. It goes from just about 0.9 AU, so not quite the Venus, out to 1.36 AU, which is not quite as far away as Mars. These objects are also interesting because they kind of call these little, they're like cyclers, where it's possible in the future you can jump on an asteroid like this and ride it out to Mars if the phasing's correct, and use it to get your water and to bury yourself, protect yourself from solar flares, and use these, or hi, even hide behind the body, you know, have put it between you and the sun, so that way you can kind of ride the asteroid out to Mars. Of course, then you have to find another asteroid to ride back in. But we haven't thought that far ahead. <coughs> it's not an extremely fast rotator, which is a good thing. It's not rotating every 26 seconds. We wouldn't be going to it. It rotates about every 4.3 hours, which is actually great. It's not rotating so fast that it makes landing on it complicated or you know, gives you the probability that the soil, is, the regulus has been... a uh, ejected, but it's not rotating too slow. You actually don't want a super slow rotator, especially if it's oblong, 
because as you're orbiting it, it's now almost like two or three point sources. If it's rotating fast, that all basically uh, averages out so you have a single point source if you're doing a slow, because you're orbiting you know, once every 27 hours or longer around something that's rotating every four hours. So after a while, it just kind of averages out and almost like a single body. So it's kind of nice to have something that's rotating that fast. Though with its spherical shape, that wasn't much of an issue. But it was actually these observations that I made in September 2005 that made us pick this asteroid. Because I had gone up to the 61-inch telescope. This is the one on Mount Bigelow. And at the time, we were going to go to a different asteroid that we didn't know quite as much about. So I knew this guy was flying by. I knew he was a good spacecraft target. So I went ahead and measured the rotation period. Go, oh, that's interesting, 4.3 hours. I did colors on it. And the color said it was slightly blue. There are not that many asteroids that are blue. Most asteroids are red. And the only ones that are blue, a lot of them have shown cometary activity. They've actually displayed tails. They're asteroids that have a little bit of ice still deep down in them. Uh, there's a whole class of objects now that are called main belt comets that aren't comets in the traditional sense that they formed in the outer solar system and came in. Well, they may have still formed in the outer solar system, but they didn't recently come in from the outer solar system. They've been in the main belt for the last four billion years. And a lot of these are B-types. Uh, if anyone knows the Geminid meteor shower in December, it's probably the best meteor shower year after year after year nowadays. That's a B-type. So here's an object that right now looks like a comet, and now that we know more about Phython, it's acted, I mean, now it looks like an asteroid. In the past, it was a comet. And it's split into three or four pieces. We found little Phython components now. So B-types are really interesting. So once I discovered it as a B-type, I kind of sent an email saying, and then I did a Google search. No one published any of this stuff. So I did a Google search, and here was all the information on it, radar data, all this spectroscopy. That's why I emailed everyone and said, look into this guy. And within two days, we said, that's our target. We know so much about it, and it's just really interesting. I kind of got ahead of myself here, but it's blue and carbon-rich. It's similar to other objects. Pallas, which I believe is the second biggest asteroid in the main belt. Themis is one most people probably haven't heard of, but it's actually very interesting in that it's got a family associated with it. Obviously, at some point in the past, Themis got popped and broke off a lot of pieces. And of these pieces, quite a few of them have acted like comets. So it suggests that Themis has ice somewhere on it. And then with Spitzer data, people actually detected water ice on the surface of this asteroid. So we're actually now detecting water ice on the surface of asteroids that only 20 years ago everyone said were bone dry. There is no water in the asteroid belt. It's all been driven off. And now we're finding that's not the case. Probably every carbonaceous object has a little bit of water somewhere. And meteorite-wise, the closest matches are what are called CI and CM meteorites. These are carbonaceous chondrites. And really, to summarize it, these are the most primitive meteorites out there. And by primitive, I mean their composition basically matches the sun. This is solar nebula material that hasn't been enriched and hasn't changed much since the beginning of the solar system. So if this is really what this is, we're going to basically, like I said, we're going to bring back a time capsule that goes back 4.6 billion years. We use some of the, uh, the space-based telescopes to uh, determine the object's albedo. Albedo is how much light gets reflected back to you from the object. It has an albedo of 3%. Okay, to put that in, make a comparison, blacktop on a road is like 10%. And that's fresh blacktop. Once it gets worn down, it's more like 15 20%. Coal is about 4%. This asteroid is darker than coal. Why is the asteroid so dark? Not quite sure. But one thing that often darkens an asteroid is organics. If you blast organics with radiation, it darkens, and it darkens a lot. That's why all the comets, before we sent spacecraft to comets, everyone thought Halley's Comet was going to be this big, bright white snowball because it's made of ice, and ice is bright. And then we got there at 4% albedo. It was a lump of coal because the organics in the comet got cooked by radiation, mainly was in the outer solar system, and it darkened. So this is one of the darkest asteroids out there. We have a good idea of where this asteroid came from. All the asteroids that are on orbits that are easy to get to from the Earth had to come from the inner part of the main belt, of the asteroid belt. 
You remember the asteroid belt goes from about, I mean, Mars is at one and a half astronomical units. One astronomical unit is the Earth-Sun distance. Mars is at 1.5. Jupiter is out about 5 AU. Most of the objects are here between about 2 and out to about 4. How objects get from the main belt to the Earth is you've got, you notice there's these uh, little gaps through here. We call these resonances. And what happens is when you're in a gap like, say, this important one here. Actually, no, it's this guy. The two to one resonance here. That means every two times the asteroid goes around the sun, Jupiter goes around once. So every two times the asteroid goes around the sun, it's meeting Jupiter at the same exact point in its orbit. So every time Jupiter nudges it, and nudges it, and nudges it. Rather than an asteroid that's going around in a non-integer and those nudges kind of average out over time, it's pulling it in the same direction at the same point in its orbit every orbit. So after a while, it starts stretching out. And if it stretches out far enough, it can be stretched to the point where it gets too close to Jupiter, and it could hit Jupiter or get tossed out of the solar system. Or it can get stretched out to the point where it gets close to the inner planets. And then after making a few close approaches to, say, a Mars or Earth or a Venus, the orbit will change enough that now it's kind of stuck in the near-Earth asteroid space. So what we think happened with RQ-36 is that it formed between about maybe 2.2, 2.4 AU, around this region here. Because we know there's a bunch of asteroid families. There's Polana and Aragoni, which are carbonaceous. <coughs> and these asteroid families formed hundreds of millions of years ago, maybe a billion years ago. A pop breaks into little pieces. Everything scatters a little bit. And then there's a force called the Yarkovsky effect. And basically, as everyone in Tucson knows, the hottest time of the day is not 12 noon. You know, it's around 3 or 4 o'clock, especially the ground. You know. So you're heating up, you're heating up, you're getting hot, you're getting hot. Even into the afternoon, you're getting hot. Even after the sun is set, the ground is still hot. I mean, I have one of those little thermal infrared uh, measurers, and at 10 o'clock, the road was still 104 degrees out in front of my house. So you're still radiating heat into the evening. Well, as you're radiating heat, that's an impulse. That's a force that's pushing on you. Now, the Earth is so big, it doesn't affect the Earth. But for a small asteroid, half kilometer across, that force adds up. And it actually starts changing what we call the semi-major axis, which is the average distance that the asteroid is from the sun. And depending on which way the asteroid's rotating, if it's rotating I think prograde, which is in the same direction the Earth rotates, it moves outwards. And if it rotates retrograde, it moves inwards. And so what happened with RQ-36 is that the big smash up here, it's a little piece. So it took it about a billion years, but eventually it made it to this edge here. And there's a resonance here, actually a resonance with Saturn. It's called the New Six. And that stretched out its orbit. And over time, it started making close approaches with the Earth, which kind of circularized its orbit. And now it's kind of a buddy of the Earth after a few tens of millions of years of passing close to the Earth. So one thing that we really are interested in learning is from these samples and from studying the asteroid up close, can we determine the entire life cycle of this body? From when it formed, when it was in, at the time was probably a 200 kilometer parent body, when that parent body got shattered, when RQ-36 was liberated from it, how long did it take bouncing around the inner main belt here, how long till it got kicked close to the sun? And how long has the material that we picked off the surface been there? Because one of the nice things about RQ-36, and one thing that makes it dangerous, but also makes it interesting to observe, is that it has probably made very close approaches to the Earth before. Approaches so close that it probably got stretched out and collapsed back on itself. So what's on the surface now was probably in the interior 100,000 years ago. And this process has probably happened multiple times. Because even though objects hit the Earth, it's much more likely that they come really close to the Earth. They don't quite hit, small target, but they come close enough that the Earth's gravity actually rips them apart, and then they kind of collapse back together on themselves. Kind of like what happened with Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 back in the 90s. It came too close to Jupiter, got ripped into a whole, probably thousands of little pieces, and then the gravity kind of collapsed some of these pieces back together into 20 main pieces. So this is a process that probably happens quite often. Like I said, we have radar imaging. And 
not only does it give us a great shape model, but for the first time we were able to measure this Yarkovsky force I talked about, where you know the asteroid's heating up in the afternoon and radiating heat in the evening. So now that we actually know, <coughs> well, it's a force. You know, force equals mass times acceleration. So we knew the acceleration. We were now able to measure the force. And since we knew the volume of the object, you can figure out, we figured out the mass, and now you got the density. So it's got a density of about one. It would float on water, or be very close to floating on water. So this object has a lot of empty space in it. There's a lot of voids in there, which makes sense if you're a rubble pile, because all the pieces probably aren't perfectly interlocked. There probably are little empty voids in the middle of this object. And we do find with these carbonaceous objects and comets, these densities can be very, very low. So this is, again, great. It also turns out that this is the, one of the most dangerous asteroids that we know about. Okay, not anytime soon, but in about 180 years or so, it has a little over a one in a thousand chance of hitting the Earth. Um, now, you know, Apophis is the one that's always in the news because it was as high as one in a few hundred. Now it's like, I think, one in 40,000, and I'm sure that's going to go to absolutely zero in the next couple of years as we get more observations. This object not only has more observations, it's got the best determined orbit for any asteroid. We know its distance from the sun, its every major average distance, every major axis, the five meters, because we were able to hit this thing with radar in 1999, 2005, and again in 2011. So it's already got a great orbit. So by going to this asteroid, one of the things we want to do is, first of all, we're going to act again like a, in a radio beacon, so we'll be able to measure the exact distance of the asteroid from the Earth, so it'll be like hitting it again with radar, so that will further uh, the amount of time we spent determining its orbit. But also, by mapping this asteroid in the thermal, we'll have a complete model of its surface and how it radiates heat. So we'll be able to figure out how this Yarkovsky force is absolutely affecting it. So we'll be able to figure out exactly where this asteroid will be in the latter part of the 22nd century. And just to give you an idea, you know, how big is this effect? 0.16 newtons, 16 grams, a half an ounce of pressure. It literally is three grapes. That's it. It doesn't take a lot to move these objects around because it's a constant force. That's the key. It's a constant force. It acts all the time, every second. And if you do that for years, you start nudging these objects. Again, something that we didn't understand until about 15 years ago. So there's been a lot of stuff that's been going on just in the past, mostly because of computers. In the old days, you needed a you know, supercomputer. Now you just buy a bunch of PCs from you know, CompUSA, and you can do the same thing people did you know, 20 years ago with supercomputers. So I'm going to close out the talk with talking about some of the education and public outreach projects that we have. This is one uh, called Target Asteroids, and it's one that I'm actually a co-investigator uh, on. I help run it with Dolores Hill. And there are a lot of objects out there that could be good targets for future missions, as well as a lot of objects that are similar to the asteroid we're going to. And there are some gaps in our knowledge for RQ-36. There are some angles we weren't quite able to observe it. So by observing other objects, we can fill in those gaps. So, I mean, there's two ways to do it. For some objects, they just don't come close to the Earth. They don't get bright. We're not going to see them anytime soon. You can go out and get the biggest telescope in the world, get your two hours of time, hope that it's not cloudy or your instrument isn't broken, and maybe you'll get, some, you'll get a snapshot in time on the asteroid. Or you can use an 8-inch telescope with a CCD from your backyard. The observations won't be the same quality as a big telescope. But if you make enough of them at enough different angles, you can start inferring some pretty important stuff about the asteroid, like what its albedo is, how much light it's reflecting back at you, what kind of asteroid it is by its colors, once you have how bright the asteroid is. <clears throat> once you have the albedo and how bright it is, you can figure out how big it is the sizes. And that's just with simple backyard telescopes. You just have to observe it a lot. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, ratty data. Just observe it enough, you beat down the errors. So it's something that we discovered that amateur astronomers can actually do and help us with. And the hope is also, I mean, there's a dual purpose for this. Not only is it to help us learn more about our target, but it's also hopefully to get amateur astronomers interested in making these sort of scientific observations. 
you know, people who might not have known that you can study asteroids, that you can learn this much about asteroids just with a small backyard telescope. And we've already started this program. We've already gotten some, a lot of good response from observers all around the world. Not everybody owns a telescope. There's a lot of online uh, kind of for-profit groups that sell time on telescopes. I do it for fun. For, you know, I'm a professional, but I'm also an amateur astronomer. So sometimes I'll buy time to observe stuff for fun as well. And so you don't even have to be there. They take the data for you. You wake up in the morning, it's there. It's great. <coughs> Assuming they point it in the right spot. That doesn't always happen. But even with the big telescopes, that sometimes happens. And this is called Name That Asteroid. And this is really for those of you who are under 18, which I don't think anybody's under 18. <coughs> but if you have little brothers and sisters, kids, grandkids, the kid across the street you think might be interested, we've got, because right now the asteroid, its official name is parent, open parentheses 101-101-955, close parentheses 1999 RQ36. Kind of a mouthful. It's never going to lose that 101955. That just means it was the 101,955th asteroid with an orbit good enough that we'll never lose it for at least 1,000 years. But we can lose that 99RQ36 and call it something else. So we're opening up this program, which opened in early September, and will close in December 2nd, for children to submit a name for the asteroid and write a little paragraph that explains it. There are rules, of course. Um, can't be named after something that's already named in the solar system by that name. Um, you can't name it after your pets. I don't necessarily agree with that rule, since for a lot of us backyard astronomers, your pet was your only companion when you were back there. <laughs> it did more for that than you know, parents or girlfriends. <laughs> they were there with you longer, out there in the backyard. And um, mostly for near-Earth asteroids are mythological. So the names they're looking for is something mythological. It doesn't have to be ancient mythology. It could be, you know, literary mythology, Cthulhu or something like that. You know. So we're looking for a name. Um, you know, NASA's run a lot of these competitions. You know, the Mars rovers are all named, you know, Opportunity and Spirit and Curiosity. We're kind of looking for a name that maybe isn't so fluffy. I mean, this is a dark, menacing object, so give us a dark, menacing name. And not too scary, but something that, you know, <laughs> kind of describes the character of the asteroid a little bit. And we'll see if this works here. There you <laughs> so yeah, that was a cute little thing Goddard, NASA Goddard did for us. So it's come up with, I mean, it's already got a name. It just it needs a good proper name. And you can't use Osiris. There's already an asteroid named after Osiris. And then stuff you can visit here in town. Um, at the Flandreau Planetarium, there's an exhibit called Great Balls of Fire that is basically about meteorites and fireballs and comets and asteroids, and it also has Osiris as part of this. And that's uh, started not too long ago, beginning of this month, and runs through the end of the year. And that will travel the country and be back a few times. And when we come back with samples, it will have samples there. There will be some small part of samples that will then travel around the country so people can see the samples up close. Um, when we bring the samples back, only 25% will actually be studied. The other 75% will be archived, because in the future we'll have better technology, we'll have better instrumentation. So keep that stuff safe so, you know, in 50 years when the machine that solves all the asteroid problems comes about, you can study this stuff with that. And for those of you who have kids in school, and there's handouts on all this stuff in the back if you haven't seen it already, you can, what we call the Asteroid Academy, where you bring your class to the Flandreau Planetarium and we'll show them everything and describe the asteroids and stuff. So it's a good trip out to the planetarium. And for those of you who are on Facebook and Twitter, you can keep updates, keep up with stuff. And this is our website right here at osiris-rex.lpl.arizona.edu where you'll find most of this information on there as well.
All right, Carl, thank you very much. And we have time for questions. Any questions for Carl? Ask questions. Nope. I'm sure I messed no up. No questions. <laughs> yes? Please talk into the mic. The layer uh, of the, the outside layer that's been changed by exposure, about how thick is that and what's the chance that, the, uh, that you'll penetrate that? It's probably a few centimeters. Um, the nice thing is we'll be able to go at least a few centimeters below it and dig up stuff that's underneath it. Um, it's a lot of it's going to depend on exactly what the, I mean, what the structure of that layer is. Are there a lot of pebbles? There's a lot of dirt. Do we land flush with the surface, or do we go in kind of sideways? Um, though our tests have shown that there's very few ways to trick us that we'll still get a lot of material in. The best would be if it was really kind of sand, and we kind of dug into it, and then and we'd go really deep. That's the hope. That's why we also want pebbles. Because even though the surface of the pebbles may be modified, if you cut it open, it should be the pristine stuff in there. We have another question over here. Mm -hmm. um, how will you move Osiris-Rex around? I know you talked about orbiting it and then coming closer and further from it. How will that work? We've got the typical, what they call bi-propellant engines, where you have two different kinds of fuel. And I have to admit, I don't know exactly what fuel's on there. But it's what's called chemical propulsion. So we basically have thrusters just like most typical to most spacecraft. So we'll fire these thrusters. We'll have a big one that will make the course corrections that will get us to the asteroid, good or bad, because some of them are cost overruns. <laughs> okay, I'd like to remind you our next lecture is two weeks from tonight, November the 5th. Professor, Fulio, Professor Fulvio Milia, who is in the Department of Physics, is going to give a talk called The Cosmic Space-Time. So you can bet that it has something to do with Einstein's theory of relativity and perhaps even black holes. So that's lecture two weeks from tonight. We'll see you then. If you want to go, look through the telescope. It's open and ready. Please, if you've never looked through the telescope, do it. And I'll stamp student assignments down here. Let's thank Carl one more time. <laughs>